Roger here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Code Mesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. The Code Mesh 2017 schedule is now live. With 40 speakers, including 4 keynotes, there is a talk at Code Mesh 2017 for everyone. Find out what you should be developing for in the future, and network with top professionals, and get inspired. With speakers from Facebook, Microsoft, CERN, Starbucks, Harvard, Cambridge University, and Imperial College of London, to name just a few. For more information and to register, visit www.codemesh.io. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of Purely Functional.tv, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans on February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to closuresync.com, that's closuresync.com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. The early bird tickets are sold out, but a new batch of tickets for the conference will start on November 1st. For more information and to register, visit www.lambdadays.org. Bob 2018 is in Berlin, Germany on February 23rd. Bob is a developer conference on what's best in software development. Naturally, it has a strong focus on functional programming. For more information and to register, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. And Bob is immediately followed by Closure D on February 24th, also in Berlin. More information on Closure D can be found at closured.de. That's closured.de. Cross-registration discounts for Bob and Closure D are also available. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please subscribe the word. If you would leave your rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us, we have Oscar Wickstrom. Oscar, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hey, nice to be on. So, my name is Oscar, and I live in Sweden, in Malmö. I work as a Haskell developer remotely, and uh, previously I've been doing music, and for, I don't know, last six or seven years, I've been doing software development in different forms. Yeah, and I like functional programming, and that's why I'm here, I guess. If you start out in music and you've been doing software development for about seven years, what was that transition that started from music to put you into programming? Was there some exposure at a younger age, but you decided to go to music first, and then you said, well, let's go on? What was that exposure? Or did you just start fresh from music and have a different background? Yeah, so my dad is a programmer as well. So uh, he started out in like construction or something and kind of gradually went into programming when they needed IT systems. And so I had it in the background in a way. But I didn't program during my teens and when I was younger. So um, I mostly did music in that part of my life. And it wasn't until after 
I had done my last year of musical education that we needed like a, a band site. So I became like the PHP person in the band and started hacking together crappy tables and bitmaps to get a cool metal band site up from the internet. And yeah, so that's how I kind of saw the utility of, of programming and got into programming in my own way. Since then, it kind of grew on me and I found better and better tools and eventually found that there were a lot of things outside web development and outside PHP that I uh, like more. So I just kept on exploring and uh, that's kind of the how it started. So if you start with PHP, just putting together a website and you say it eventually evolved, what was that made it more interesting that said, I want to start looking at some of these other things? Is it just looking at other things you could do with PHP and building your website and starting to take advantage of some of those fancy plugins that people write or saying, oh, there's real power here versus over just tables and images? What was that thing that kind of pushed you further down that route of wanting to explore this more? Yeah, so pretty early on, I took a leap and started my own company. That was one or two months in, in my programming journey. So I started my own company and I got a job to do a website for a microphone manufacturer. And uh, they wanted like a product catalog and to have some kind of way of entering their product details and dynamically building up the site. And I had no idea how to do that. So somehow I got a hold of XML and started building stuff in PHP with XML. And then I got a new client in that company. And they wanted to do something else. And yeah, I found like WordPress and uh, plugins and stuff and saw the need or really felt the need to, to learn how to program these things properly and build systems out of existing parts and not always go back to my XML hack because that was not a very good program. And if you're playing with PHP, you're going WordPress. Sure, there's probably some JavaScript in there a little bit because you're doing front-end stuff and you're needing to do some decorations and web effects before CSS started getting super fancy. If my timeline is right from recalling when the animations and all those other things started to become popular, what was the thing that put it past that little scope into saying, let me just start to look and understand all these other languages out there? You eventually get to doing Haskell day-to-day as you said, you're doing Haskell as a remote developer now. There's a large jump conceptually, it seems, between doing WordPress, PHP, some JavaScript, and depending on how far you go down that route, if you're just messing with plugins and pulling in the appropriate plugins with small little customizations, as opposed to writing your own plugins. But depending on where you fall on that, that still seems like a bigger jump to Haskell straight away. So what was that evolution like? Okay, my first steps was I found out about this object-oriented programming and tried to learn that in PHP, which was a big challenge at that time. And then I decided that I need to get better at programming in general. So I decided to go to a school and me and my girlfriend moved. I started a school and they primarily taught C-sharp and .NET. And so I went all in on the... C-sharp and object orientation and classic kind of books on design and, and uh, OOP. Yeah, I, I didn't stay too long at that school because I didn't really 
enjoy the education and the teachers. So I learned that stuff quite, it came naturally at a point and I got a job, a consulting gig as a Java developer at a larger company in the region. So that's kind of how I got past the PHP hacking together plugins level. And as you said, the small JavaScript sugar on the customer websites. I think that was the point when it kind of took off in terms of really learning programming across more languages and seeing bigger patterns. And if you're going this route and you're going back to school, was that going back to school and picking up .NET and Java eventually with this education and these internships, was that more for utility or more out of interest or a little bit of both? I'm sure the utility was there if you're starting to pick up all these consulting gigs. Was that the Spark had been found at that point and it started to evolve and understand, oh, there's better ways to do this. Let me see what's out there. And that continued to evolve or... Was that little excitement and spark that said, hey, let me go play with all these other languages further down the line? I think it was both. I definitely saw the utility in, in .NET and Java. And compared to what I'd been doing before, it was a lot better. And I had a mentor at my first company as well who introduced me to Scala. And he said, like, you must learn this language. This is, this is the future. This is how we evolve on the JVM. So I started looking in Scala a lot, and by now I actually have forgotten everything. But I think that was my first real exposure to functional programming. And I did Scala on my free time from there and got a bit disappointed after a while and started looking at Haskell. I can't remember how I found Haskell really, but that's how I got into Haskell from Java, really. So the Scala was... The exposure as you were doing Java and it was, we all recognized the pain of this. You're starting to recognize the pain and let's look at Scala because it solves some of these different pain points. Was that how it was sold to you? What about the, this is the future made it seem to be the future of development on the JVM? What was sold to you that made you say, yeah, that's worth checking out. That sounds interesting to me versus what I'm doing right now. I think actually at that point, I wasn't ready to make like a good informed decision. So I probably just took his word for it, but I did work with Java for a number of years after, and I did feel the pain that he was referring to, but I hadn't felt it that much. So uh, I was just absorbing uh, every advice from people that I respected that I could get all on. And then you mentioned pain a couple of different times. The pain of playing some of these plugins and doing some basic PHP, getting that pain solved a little bit from the PHP side by moving into .NET with C Sharp, a little bit of Java, seeing pain in Java, moving to Scala, probably feeling some of the pain on both of those still. I'm guessing because the Scala, was there exposure to like Scala Cats or Scala Z that gave you the hint of Haskell that said, well, there's still some pain here. Let's see how I... Was it a, let's see how I avoid the pain and go further on into Haskell and see if this avoids the pain? I don't think I got in contact with cats or, or anything like that very early. I believe it was the book, Learn New Haskell, which I found out about somehow. Maybe a bunch of colleagues as well who told me about Haskell, like this could be an interesting language for you to check out. So Haskell was a real 
refreshing experience for me. It's kind of, as you said, you found newer tools reducing pain like bit by bit, but Haskell came from the other side and was just magically wonderful, but I couldn't really see how it was useful. So the other tools were easier to kind of take a step, one better thing or a bunch of better features perhaps, but Haskell was something in the far distance and I only used it for the toy exercises and the simple pure function exercises and math problems and so on. And you said you were going to school, you didn't quite complete it. And at that point, if you picked up PHP on your own, just out of building a site, you do part of your schooling in .NET, you start picking up Java and someone points Scala out to you early on, still in this timeline of your development career. When you're picking up Scala, and was that this is a better Java? Were you starting to get exposure to the functional ideas? One of the reasons I'm wondering is people hear about that argument of, is it easier to teach someone functional programming or expose them to functional programming if they don't have the baggage of OO and some of these other things? Was that something that was exposed to you pretty early on? And was there a mindset shift that you still needed when you started to first encounter functional programming? Or was that one of those things that became pretty straightforward? Because you also said you stumbled across object-oriented a little bit when trying to apply it to your WordPress and PHP stuff. What was the functional programming transition and entry looking like? So when I did uh, Scala, I think I didn't really appreciate the functional ideas. As I said, I kind of just took his word for it and, and did stuff with Scala, but I still probably programmed Scala as I would have programmed Java, just marginally better syntax or something. So when I found Haskell, that was a real, totally different thing. Yeah, so I don't think I got that experience of learning functional programming as the first big paradigm. I still had a like the OO thinking as a basis and had to relearn as I think many do. And that's why I was wondering was if you're still new in OO, sometimes I've heard if you get into Scala early enough, you start to see a little bit of the pain of Java and having to create a whole object just to essentially call a function and create an interface that represents that function, whereas you could just pass that around in Scala because you got functions as first-class citizens, whereas pre-Java 8, I want to say, you had no lambdas. And so there was that overhead of doing it. So even if it's a better Java, it's a better Java with lambdas. And I wasn't sure seeing and stumbling across some of those points, if you had that little exposure to Scala, but still doing Java mainly in your work. Yeah, I could probably appreciate one or two of those features, like being able to do like send a callback with that lambda instead of anonymous inner class or what it's called. But as you say, it's, it was a, a better Java, really, for me at that point. But I didn't really get any opportunity to use Scala at work, so it faded out pretty quickly. I was only doing Scala for half a year or something, mostly on my free time. Then. We had like a secret test suite in the enterprise project written in Scala, but no one knew about that. So that was the only place there where people could apply Scala without having to confess and then you said that when you got into playing with Haskell, that was starting to be the mind shift change. What was the change there? Because Haskell potentially can throw a bunch of concepts at you, depending on how you approach it to begin with. 
What were some of those things that you noticed as that beginning mindset change? And were there any things that, especially since you're doing Haskell now and you made the transition, that from doing your OO, doing your Java with your PHP background, everything that came before it, what were some of those selling points that you saw immediately? And what were some of those stumbling blocks as you were coming in for Haskell? Because depending on how you approach Haskell, I've heard there's a bunch of different ways you could be thrown off. If you get introduced to monads too early and try and understand that concept without understanding why versus some people just get stumbled on the immutability if it's their first functional language. What were the first experiences with Haskell like, even if you were using them as toy problems and math problems? I think immutability wasn't a, a large problem for me. I don't know really why, but it didn't pose a big problem. I remember having one big experience, like a big mindset shift or like a realization. I think I almost woke up in the middle of the night and realized how static dispatch works in Haskell, as opposed to how dynamic dispatch works in, in Java or similar language. And that was a eye opener. And I think that among other things, I started to look at languages more in a different light after having learned some of these concepts in Haskell and seeing new things in languages. I should have known that they were there all the time, but I, I couldn't really um, see a difference between languages. So the static dispatch thing was one of those big aha moments. And uh, concerning the IO, I think I just didn't really get it in the beginning. I just learned how to, what to write, basically, just to get forward. And for people who may not have that experience, what was that aha moment between the dynamic dispatch in Java and that static dispatch in Haskell that you kind of came to the conclusion to for people who might not understand that difference or might not even be doing Haskell as their functional language and may still be in a language with dynamic dispatch? I'm not sure if I can provide a good explanation just like offhand. But I can describe the thing I was doing. I, I was trying to implement like an event store or um, like an event sourcing system, but in Haskell instead of all the examples were like Java and, and similar. But I was really interested in event sourcing back then. And I tried to implement that in Haskell and I couldn't get it to, to fit. I couldn't get some, anything to, to compile because I kind of approached it in the wrong direction in a way. And then I got this realization how static dispatch works. So I had to basically invert my whole program. And I don't know if I can provide like a good example of a minimal thing to highlight that difference. But that was the situation that really forced me to understand this. And you start playing with Haskell more. You're saying it's toy projects, math problems. You're doing this on the side. You're just learning this. What was it that was able to make you go from, oh, this is interesting, I'm still doing Java, to today's point, you're a remote Haskell developer doing Haskell full-time? What was that bridging the gap in there between those two timeframes? Well, after a couple of Java projects, I worked at the consultancy firm. I started doing uh, like a front-end JavaScript projects, mobile JavaScript web apps, and, and so on. And uh, I think it was around that time where FP started hitting the JavaScript community. And after Angular and so on, React and those libraries and frameworks started showing up. And FP and like reactive programming started to make its way into JavaScript. And in that way, I think I saw 
like oh i can use these ideas and the stuff i've been playing around with in haskell in this setting and so i think i approached functional javascript using my what i had learned in haskell and always kind of try to you know visualize the type signatures and how that and that would work in haskell the code that i wrote in javascript so it was like a background haskell process going on while working with javascript and i think that had a big big impact on how i learned haskell even though i didn't really write any haskell was that kind of a big push for you when you were working in javascript and this functional programming idea started to creep in their JavaScript can be many kinds of different styles and just the same code base sometimes. When you're trying to think in types, you're trying to apply some of these functional ideas that you've already been exposed to through Haskell. Was that something that was on board the team that you had? Was that kind of common? Were you kind of fighting the grain? And did some of those things make it easier or harder to actually apply these ideas as you're realizing all these functional ideas are becoming big in JavaScript and I'm trying to apply them and take advantage of those learnings and the learnings I've had in Haskell. Was that straightforward? Was there complexity there with the interaction of the rest of the team? Did the rest of the team that you were working with buy into those ideas as well? And so you were able to kind of push yourself further. What was that like at that time? I think in at least one or two projects, we're like a split. So there were a couple of developers not that into functional programming. Maybe they wanted to learn a bit or they were a bit reluctant to learn those things. So unfortunately, we had like a split and we didn't really go all the way and bring all the frameworks and, you know, enforce a really functional style. So it was more like a, we didn't use like a, Ramda or whatever, like a functional framework thing or utility library, but you could start mapping and reducing stuff and using some of the simpler functional concepts still. So it wasn't really full on, but you could utilize some of the simpler concepts. And uh, I also started to internally in the company and the client's project started to do education and teach people about functional programming. So that was a good way to learn more as well. So you're setting that foundation. You're getting your functional programming experience stronger between finding a place you can apply those ideas that you've been exposed to, taking some JavaScript that you're writing, saying, can I make this more pure from since I've understood purity in Haskell, maybe I can do some immutability. Maybe I can take advantage of map reduce filter, depending on what I can get away with based off these split teams. So getting that experience and then the fact that you're actually doing your mini trainings that you just talked about where you're bringing these ideas back and you're exposing it to people both in the consultancy and in the clients. How did that help push you forward with your comfort and understanding of the functional concepts and finding those areas where the rough edges are and that you're like, okay, I don't know this as well. Let me go back and understand this better. I think that's a good question. And it's a kind of two-way feedback thing because I learned like theoretical functional stuff from Haskell and so on and bring it back to work and perhaps can use some of these ideas. But then from the work and from the education and, and talking to people, you get ideas back into what you want to learn, not only like specific things, but small problems or small domains that you want to fiddle with and apply functional programming to. So if someone has made a library or a prototype or some program for some purpose without functional programming, 
you might learn about that and you want to try it yourself in Haskell and so on. So it was um, an exchange between those both worlds, really. And at some point you make the jump into Haskell. You're starting to push down this route. You're making that change back. You're finding new ideas to apply to your toy projects. What triggered the jump? Were you still with the consultancy and all of a sudden the Haskell project came along and you're jumping at it? You're like, yes, yes, yes. Was that the consultancy said, hey, we've got something else? Was there just another job opened up and you're like, hey, I can go off and do this? What was that transition to actually starting to push into Haskell full time? The major first thing triggering that was a small tool thing that we did on a project. So it was me and a couple of other um, consultants from the same firm, and uh, they were all interested in functional programming. And we, well, it was probably mostly me, but we did like a documentation tooling thing for generating uh, these security documents that we needed to produce and uh, generating documentation around that. And I wrote a small markup language thing for the security documents and Haskell, like a small compiler that generated all these documents. And then I got my feet wet with writing compilers in Haskell. So not long after I started a, a hobby project, which was called Odin, which was a functional programming language, very simple, that targeted Go. So it really transpired like a ML, simple ML-like language to Go source code and compile it through the regular Go compiler tools chain. So uh, that was probably like the springboard into doing Haskell because I went to a, a number of conferences and talked about this Odin language and started talking to a lot of people online. And that really kicked off both the conference speaking and my open source activities as well. But yeah, I should perhaps mention PureScript coming in about that time as well, but uh, it was kind of a parallel story. So, And that's interesting because I've heard some other people talk about it and you kind of half referenced it with your Scala times where sometimes you get that chance to take it in your job, apply it in your job on just a side tangential thing. So the fact that you just needed this, as long as you could get it done, nobody really cared about what that tool for parsing your security documents and getting them formatted right and and the appropriate output that needed. And having that stuff sounds like those opportunities that people say that that's what helped get me on this thing was that experience of actually having a real problem and usually being able to be semi-productive in it a lot faster than other languages and saying, oh yeah, I got this knocked out. This is inconsequential, but I was able to do this. And was that part of the selling point there that said, we got this knocked out? Yeah, it's Haskell. We don't expect anybody to really mess with this code, but put Haskell on more people's radar if you had those two or three other people with you that were working on this and made it something more intriguing in that company? Yeah. So that was like, I had heard this thing, as you mentioned, from I have a friend who wanted to write closure and uh, he couldn't really introduce it in his project, but he could write all those small scripts and small glue code integrations and whatever that was his own uh, small tools. So I thought I could do that as well with Haskell. And it was in this project where we use Haskell for this uh, documentation. We did like a, it was me and a colleague and we were commuting back home on the train and we did like a, a small contest. So like who can write the parser faster? So he did it in Node.js and I did it in Haskell. And we eventually said like, okay, this should be done in Haskell. This 
really shines here. So I got some buy-in as well. So it wasn't just me going away and doing strange things, but they also liked it and, and wanted to learn. And uh, like I helped them set up their environments and, and get that stuff compiling. And did that help make a sale to the rest of your teammates about the potential of Haskell, even if it wasn't being used day in, day out for consultant projects, but the rest of the people in there saying, oh, it's interesting to see what Oscar was able to accomplish with Haskell. Maybe there is something to this instead of just being that person that says, no, 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 let me tell you how great this is, or let me tell you what I'm learning, and here's where I learned it from. But having something tangible that proves out that idea that says, oh, yeah, there's this. Did that help get more people on board aside from the one other person you were doing the parser challenge with once it got that adoption to say, let's write this in Haskell. We'll do it in Haskell. Did that help bring on other people on board to that idea of writing Haskell and starting to learn Haskell for themselves? I'm not sure that this particular little excursion motivated them to learn Haskell more, but perhaps. We got some funny comments, like we were doing strange stuff in obscure languages and people being a bit surprised that we used that. But I think they had Haskell perhaps a bit on their radar and they saw, oh, we could actually use it in our project for something real. And I doubt that they used Haskell in that project for anything else later, but I have met them since and they like they wanted to study the Haskell book and uh, they went into pure script and all kinds of related technology. So yeah, I think it, it might have made some contribution to their Haskell and pure script learning. And then you've kind of touched on it you with Odin and this tools chain for creating your documents. But in the setting up of the call, you mentioned you've got a large excitement about creating tooling and bettering the tooling environment. Where does that focus on? Was that a lot of scars just in past languages? Or is there something else that goes about this tooling and finding the tooling and figuring out how you can be, I guess, more productive, more maintainable in the long run or whatever that premise is? What's some of the background and premise of getting excited about these toolings and finding ways to make, or I guess, just what makes tooling exciting for you? I think if you regard all the kinds of technical tools and the language that you're using or the languages and like the whole ecosystem. If you see all that as tooling, then I think what kind of drives me is not just to write new tooling projects and like create my own tools, but to bring in the best tools that I want and kind of compose them in, in ways. So it's not just writing compilers and creating your own language, but I have this, like my strongest drive, I think is around how to evolve software and how to have it maintainable and easy to work with as time goes by and features come and go and requirements and so on. And taking that kind of, as you said, the pain that eventually arises after the green field isn't so green anymore and trying to use the best tools or very good tools to minimize that pain and to make it enjoyable to keep working with the code base. I feel strongly about that for some reason. So I think that's where both languages and tooling and, and all kinds of stuff come in. And that's why I go in that direction. And with that, there's a lot of tooling out there. A lot of people try and improve the tooling. It may improve their workflow in the way they think. It may just be an experiment that gets picked up. If you look at a bunch of different languages, 
each language has their own number of ways to do any given thing. And then you've got a longer history of other toolings that you're built upon. How do you figure out which tooling parts that is worth working on for you and which parts need to be improved, which parts need to be scrapped, which parts need to be improved that you can actually improve versus part of this is just if we could rewrite the terminal, that'd make it so much easier, as some people have alluded to. But there's 30 years of history or more back into how the terminal works. So, yeah, we're stuck with this. Where is that balance of some of this tooling and finding out where the tooling can be improved and which ones make those bang for the buck in your opinion? It's a hard trade-off. I'm interested in documentation tooling as well. So <laughs> you run a big risk if you want to like use all the best tools. Then you have to install Node and Python and Ruby and Java and something else. And you have to have Make and you can't run on Windows. And, and there are some bash scripts as well. Why not? So you have all these things, and it's more or less a, a nightmare to set up the project and, and get going. So there is a trade-off between just throwing everything in there, and there's no tooling silver bullet either. So um, I think it's still very hard, and it's like in every project, it's almost as you start from scratch and have to think it all through once again. So um, I haven't really figured out what the best way would be, but one of the things that has stuck is, I guess, the Unix philosophy of having tools that do one thing only and one thing well. And that at least makes it easier to kind of pick and choose and, and combine them in sensible ways. Yeah, and as that was kind of my question was the, you're pulling in everything, so now you've got seven different languages you're dependent on because you've got this other thing. And I've noticed sometimes, like, I felt pain where... Like, oh, God, this is horrible. I wish it could be easier. And then you start to take a step back to figure out how it could be easier. Like, I don't know that I have the time or the mental energy or the lifespan even to try and focus on improving this thing. So I didn't know how you personally went about figuring out which of those tools was worth putting your effort into. Well, when it comes to languages, I like static typing and I like functional programming languages. So Haskell fits very well in that sense. And in other tools, it's hard to pin down what really, what makes one tool better than another. But I think if you take documentation, I like the Sphinx documentation system and restructured text format. Um, it's just this, it's hard to measure, but some feeling of it being thought through and concise, I think that's a parameter as well. But more important is probably that you have not too much like locking into a language or into a certain like you want to be able to generate the documentation from the command line and you want to be able to script that you don't want to have to use a gui or or anything just you want to be able to script the whole thing basically and that's an important thing and i guess the flip side of that question is when you're writing tools for yourself or for your team on that project like you mentioned the documentation assembly for your security documentations or the ML to be compiled down into Go language and be able to take advantage of the Go tool chain from that point on. What are some of those ideas that feed into how you decide that says, oh, okay, I need to write some tooling around this stuff and maybe I need to write this tooling versus I pick up some of this other documentation stuff and use Sphinx versus write my own restructured text parser. Where do those decisions come in from you? You start experimenting with some tool and it doesn't take 
too long before you feel that you're kind of hitting the roof here and I can't go as far as I want. And some tools seem to just have no ceiling or almost none and that you can kind of extend in any way you want. And it might become a bit tricky. You might have to combine it with a lot of other tools and make files and bash scripts and set and whatnot. But or languages that you have to combine a lot of libraries and figure stuff out. But at least you feel like there's nothing holding me back here. It's like a framework versus library thing almost that you, I mean, frameworks have their obvious value, but when you know early on that this is not going to cut it in the long run, then you might have to do some upfront work and pick smaller tools that do like smaller things. And we're coming up on time and we've got still got a couple topics we can cover, but is there anything that we've talked about that neither you've realized we should expand on, needs more clarification, or anything that we haven't covered that you at least want to bring attention, discuss, and we can give a highlight as far as put it on people's radar for these topics and things you want to at least get out there for people to start thinking over? One thing I've been working on since last year and at least half of this year i kind of lost speed on it right now but it's stuff for pure script and uh, it's a project called hyper and hyper is basically a pure script version of connect and express for node it's an architecture for middleware for http servers that aims to make composition of middleware safe in the type system and not only like checking that this record type matches this record type, but that the side effects are safe. So you have this request response in HTTP server is basically a small state machine where you have to write your headers first, and then you can start streaming the body and then you close the response. So I've worked a bit on that and uh, that was an interesting project, but yeah, it's still experimental, but it could be interesting for people to check out perhaps. And I think that's what got me a bit into this intersection between state machines and type systems, which is what I'm fiddling around with right now and which is what I'm going to talk about at some conferences. So I haven't like any project or, or anything around state machines and, and type systems other than, than hyper, but there might be something coming out like blog posts or something. I, I'm not sure yet. And that leads me to question... If you're familiar with Haskell and you're playing with PureScript, what puts something like Hyper on your radar where you're wanting to run PureScript in Node? What are some of those advantages versus just going back to the Haskell side and saying, if I'm on the server and I'm doing server-side stuff, what I want is I want Haskell. And if I'm on the web side and doing web stuff, I want PureScript. What is interesting to you about taking the pure script stuff and running it on the server in a node environment. What appeals to you? Is there something that's nicer that pure script's gotten right? Is that just compatibility and saying, well, I, if I could do pure script and we have to use AWS, I throw it on a Lambda and so I can do it because it gets compiled down to JavaScript. What's that little selling point about having pure script on the server side and node when you know Haskell? So that's the question I always get asked when people ask me about Hyper. But to be honest, I didn't start doing Hyper as a thing like, okay, I'm disappointed in server side Haskell. I, I want to do it in node instead. It was 
a small idea I had around the record types and the rope polymorphism in PureScript, like a small curiosity, like how would this fit together with middleware? Because with middleware, you have these basically chain them together and they kind of add more values to the context and also change the state of the request response cycle. But it was an experiment to see how rope polymorphism would help out in that context. So I did try a bit with Haskell, but it doesn't have raw polymorphism and there are some libraries, but they were kind of clunky and I felt like I could keep going with the PureScript instead. So my motivation is not to write service for Node specifically, but it started that way as an experiment. And then people have said like, oh, this is cool because we have this, I don't know, people may have a bit of a lock-in and like... Perhaps you're using some platform as a service or have some requirement on, on running on Node. And some people have said that they want to gradually migrate an existing Express app over to PureScript. And they wanted to kind of type their existing middleware and their existing parts of their app with Hyper and, and bring it in gradually. So that could be a, a win as well. And I also want to mention there's a project, which I'm not sure about the status and the maturity and so on. I think it's very experimental, but people are trying to, or are running PureScript on Erlang with the Beam. So um, there's been some work on on running Hyper on on the Beam as well with, I think it's called Cowboy, but I'm not sure. I'm not an Erlang developer. Yeah, I heard about Hardy Jones mention on Magic Readalong, the Perel project of PureScript on Erlang, and I could see where that could fit in too. And the reason I was asking about the node was I didn't know if that was personal motivation. As you said, it winds up being an experiment, but I could see it being multiple ways because because you mentioned, and I've heard other people talk about PureScript with different aspects and a slightly different evolution of lessons learned for, as you said, row type polymorphism is there's some features here that I want versus the other flip side that you mentioned, which was the, I've got essentially some kind of vendor lock-in. We have to use Node, but all they said was we have to use Node. And if I'm going to have to write something on Node, I'd rather do something that gives me types if I'm a fan of types instead of just regular JavaScript. And that's how I was wondering what your motivation was. And the experiment sounds interesting, but it's always interesting to hear if people are actually getting away, like you said, with well, we have to use Node, but I could start introducing PureScript or anything else like this, Elm, maybe if it fits, that can take one of these other more functional languages and run it on Node just because our constraint from upper management is it has to be Node. They didn't actually say it has to be JavaScript kind of thing. Yeah, it was a fun thing to discover that this was perhaps not only an experiment, but perhaps useful. And uh, I also eventually realized that if people were writing uh, PureScript frontends, then they could do like, I think people are writing like servant apps in Haskell and they have like this bridge thing where they translate their types and generate PureScript types. But if they would write their backend in PureScript as well, they can just share those types that go over the network. So that was also a perhaps small, but still a plus side on this setup. And then you mentioned you've got some upcoming talks about state machines and types. Do you want to give a high-level tease of that topic and what that might be 
And then we can get into where people can actually find you at upcoming talks and look for those videos coming up. But do you want to give a tease of what that talk means and a high-level overview of some of those ideas before we start to wrap up? Yep. So the talk is called Finite State Machines, Your Compiler Wants In. And the point is to kind of gradually go from having no state machine in your design, just having a bunch of implicit states scattered across mutable variables everywhere and everything's a mess. And then gradually move towards introducing data types and kind of cleaning things up and making the states and the transitions explicit. And from there, you can use a functional language to see that you're covering all cases. And going forward, you can express the only, like these are the legal transitions. You can go from here to here, and then you can have your compiler check your state machine for you. The thing is to take it from all the way down from implicit and big mess of, of variables up to some experiments or so some examples in Idris and in PureScript, maybe a bit of Haskell as well, where you get a lot of help from the compiler if you express your stage machine in, in this way. And one important thing is that it's not this journey from doing implicit and uh, mutable variables all the way up to like Idris programs. It's not from worse to better, but it's I think you can gain a lot by just going like one step up and having some notion of your state machine that you perhaps otherwise would have written down on paper. So it's like a, a big menu a la carte of what you can do with your compiler and your state machines. It sounds like taking that making illegal states irrepresentable idea and expounding that and also going down to the whole workflow of your program and every single transition between everything instead of just saying, well, this type has to be one of these some types and making it only be able that only be able to be represented, but representing, well, if I'm on this screen or if I've got this state of request, as you mentioned with your hyper stuff that says my state is I got to put certain headers in beforehand versus the body, but maybe I need to put the body in before I finally put my content length header in. Because if I just put that in, I have to update that eventually. And going from beyond my response looks like this to how I build my response is now also representable and making the illegal transitions there irrepresentable as well. Yeah, exactly. So the big important thing in this is that you often do side effects like during this program's execution and that's what you kind of want to protect that you do the side effects in the correct order and as you have stated them to be legal if you can mess that up you might do a side effect twice or skip over or do an incorrect order or something so if you had only pure programs then making those state machine programs would be that is simpler I guess. And many examples are like small regular expression engines and, and parsers, which are pure programs. But when you start interleaving side effects in the middle of this, you can gain a lot by tracking those states and those transitions in types and making sure that you only do them correctly. And that sounds interesting. And the fact that because it's expanded, state machines are all still kind of fractal in a sense that says I can actually bundle up and have one state just be another mini state machine that transitions from its starting state into its other state in the way that we think of 
programs are made up of other little programs. Functions are made up of other functions. It's this fractal thing and the fact that you can essentially take what we think of at the small level and reverse fractal that out, I guess, and apply it to your whole program. Sounds like it's got some interesting potential as well. That says, well, I have a bunch of little tiny state machines that represent different parts of my program, but I can now treat those all as a state, represent those with types, and make the transition between all those other subparts representable and irrepresentable for the transitions between those two. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect. Absolutely. If, if people are interested in that, they can already take a look at the stuff available for Idris, and they have like a good tutorial on their documentation site for programming with state and expressing stuff like state machines and expressing state machines in terms of other state machines and composing them and so on. So there's a lot of stuff there. But one point I also want to make, and which the talk is, is going to make at least, is this is a, a very nice hammer, but you may be, you don't want to apply it everywhere. So you can use this thing as where it kind of buys you the most. And uh, that's how I've been seeing it. This is like many other things I do. It's coming from some, not only like a theoretical curiosity, but I got this idea for this talk in a project last year where we had like this regular checkout flow where you got to check your cards and your, you do some external third-party service call and you have like coupon codes and all that. And this whole checkout flow is a state machine and we drew it on paper and started fixing the code to match that. And then we got like a new requirement. We didn't have a certain step and, okay, can you put this step in between step three and four? I don't know exactly what it was. And then you have to match all these things up again. So it grew from that. And in that project, it only made sense to express that part as a state machine. I think we would waste a lot of time to do it for everything. So I think you can apply it where you can leverage from doing that work. And we talked about this as upcoming conference presentations. You mentioned a couple of others. So where can people find you at these conferences? If they're going, if they may be there, where can they meet you in person? Or where should they be looking for potential videos to be coming out and just keep updated with this and find out more about this topic through your presentations? So I post most of my updates and stuff on Twitter. And we can perhaps provide a link. I have a website as well, which we might link as well. So I have my previous talks there and and a blog and so on. And for upcoming conferences, I'm going to talk at CodeMesh in London. That's the 8th of November. And I have a, a couple of pending ones as well, so I can't say too much. But that's the one coming up. And I just got my ticket for Haskell Exchange next year because I missed this year and they had like a early bird sign up this week. So I went for that. Sounds good. I'll get the links to your Twitter and your site in the show notes and people can find you coming up at CodeMesh. Haskell will change next year if they've already got their ticket ahead of time like you've done. And I'm sure we'll get some announcements out as in the future. And I'll help publicize those if you've got more announcements that you're speaking at coming up in the future. We can help let people know about that as well via Twitter or some other mechanism. Cool. Thank you. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Oscar, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you and always interesting to hear how people have gotten in 
and interesting to see some of the things that you're working on and experimenting with in your side projects. So Odin sounds interesting just to see a example of a parser compiler to a different language. The hyper for seeing how these request stuff are building out and just having some other details about what's going on and what's out there in the broader development ecosystem. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. And I'm looking forward to your upcoming talk at CodeMesh and watching the video, understanding more about the state machines and making those types representable. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.